Well, as we open our Bibles together this morning, would you bow with me for a word of prayer as we ask God to attend to our time? Heavenly Father, again, even our time together already has been sobering, and surely as we open your word, as we allow it to examine us, as we hear what you have to say, as your scalpel cuts deep within to the thoughts and intentions of our own heart, we know that conviction is there. We know that that awaits us, and we know that that is a grace. So Lord, this morning, as we hear your word, as we embrace the truth, as we are convicted by it, allow it to work in us your purposes for your end, for your glory, for the goodness of the gospel, and for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would take your Bibles this morning then and open them with me to our study of Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We are returning to where we left off a couple of weeks ago as we deal with the very practical and yet very often not so desirable part of living the Christian life. We have made a transition in our study of Paul's gospel concerning Christian behavior. We have been talking about the necessity of self-imposed submission to all authority. I specifically have written the title of this message and the previous message that we spoke about that way because it is a necessity. It is an absolute. It is something that cannot be neglected. It is something that must be done. This self-imposed submission. The moment we hear the word submission or even self-imposed submission to all authority, the reality is that our sinful flesh recoils against it. If you have not had your flesh do that up to this point, then maybe you just haven't been listening. Because any time we hear about authority and any time we hear about submitting to authority and any time we put the little term all in there, which means inclusive of every authority, our sinful flesh recoils against it. Because prior to salvation, prior to God saving us by His mercy and His grace, The direction of our lives, whether we were knowledgeable of it or not, the direction of our lives was to go against any authority placed over us. From the day we took our first breath until the day we take our final breath, the flesh, the fallen reality of humanity, of which we have inherited from Adam, hates authority. It doesn't matter how immature a person is in life, 
from infancy onward, within the existence of the sin nature in all of us is an innate hatred of rule, an innate hatred of authority, and therefore it strives continuously for autonomous rule of self. We saw this reality to be the very characteristic of all who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is a reality that cannot be combated against unless you're a Christian. All who do not know Jesus Christ have this characteristic rampant within their very personhood. Fact, if you were to turn over to Second Peter chapter two, you don't have to turn there. I'll just relay these things to us. In Second Peter chapter two, Peter is clearly speaking concerning false teachers, those who do not know Jesus Christ, those who have infiltrated the church and who are teaching people as if it is truth, and yet they are false teachers. They are pseudo teachers. And Peter says of them, beginning in verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in corrupt desires and despise authority. That's the very characteristic, the very nature of Anyone who doesn't know Christ, they despise authority. It is highlighted, it is amplified in those who are false teachers. In fact, just the next book over in Jude, Jude verse 8 echoes what Peter says by saying one characteristic of the ungodly is exactly that. They reject authority. Now think about that for a moment, just as you think about how life goes on, life in your own home, life in the workplace, life in society. The reality of a rejection of authority is everywhere. It is rampant everywhere within society and within the heart of men. And so the characteristic of the Christian, and if we were to use Biblical terminology, the characteristic of the godly, the truly godly person, the one who knows Christ, is that we as Christians are to be living lives of self-imposed submission to authority for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, God has perfectly planned and ordained us to be here for a time as sojourners so that we might be, in fact, shining lights for the gospel. In other words, the clarity of the gospel as it is seen in and through our lives is at stake. You ever think of your life like that? That the clarity of the gospel, the clarity of the message of Jesus Christ, the clarity of the power of Christ to change a sinner from dead sinful state into a living, God-honoring, Christ-desiring, gospel-presenting person is your life. You are a picture of that. And the clarity of the gospel from your life is seen in and through your life And it is at stake by means of our obedience to this very doctrine that we're talking about this morning. 
The clarity of the gospel is at stake. That doesn't mean that God in some way is thwarted, that God in some way can't save somebody without you. Surely that's true. God can create from nothing. He has done that. And yet He has ordained it. So much so that the means of salvation, the power of God and salvation being the gospel, is seen in and through us, and the clarity of the gospel is seen in and through us in our obedience to this very doctrine that we are talking about. And so it's imperative that we not simply listen to what is given to us here. It is imperative that we actually do what is being heard from the Apostle Paul here in chapter 13. So let's begin our time once again this morning by first just listening to the words of God the Spirit, as they are given to us through the Apostle Paul, as we have them here in chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. The Apostle Paul says, Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, He who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, because it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake, for because of this you also pay taxes. Rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. As intelligent adults and young people who are here this morning, when we just read this text, it is not difficult for us to understand the driving issue behind it. We do not have to be Bible scholars in order to understand what Paul is saying. There is a great need for the Christian, and within Christendom, there is a great need for the Christian to be willing submitters to authority. This is what this is about. There is no need for us to make attempts to try to adjust the thrust in one way or another. This is what it's about. Verse 1 is very clear. Every person, literally every soul, is to be in subjection to ruling authority. Now on the surface, with just a little bit of thought with it, we can see that one of the implications of that in our society is 
that which comes with our citizenship. Speaking specifically of us here in the West, we as Christians ought to be the best citizens in the country. Just that very verse, just the first implication that we want, just on a a surface level, see. If every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities, and this is to the Christian, and part of the outflow of our understanding of what it means to be a Christian is to understand that we were dead in our sins, that we hated God, that we wanted nothing to do with God, that we were worshipers of the creature rather than the Creator, like Romans 1 says, and that God, by His mercy and grace, drew us to Himself, called us out, and granted us salvation, and because of all of that mercy that God shined upon us, we are to present ourselves as instruments, right? Living, holy sacrifices, set apart, living sacrifices to God. If that's the case, then we as Christians ought to be, in light of what Paul says in Romans 13:1, the best citizens that the world has ever seen. There should be no other citizen that could have a higher place than we as citizens within the country. In other words, every soul is to be in subjection. And we as Christians know that those who are not saved only do what will somehow benefit them. Someone might say, well, other citizens do the right thing. Yes, but they're only doing it because it's what will help them, what will be good for them, what they will get from it. But we as Christians ought to be citizens that are outshining all of the others because we understand exactly where our citizenship lies. And we understand exactly what our life is to entail here for the sake of of the gospel, we ought to be the very definition of good citizenship. And that good citizenship, Paul says, is to be governed by a willingness to submit. Now, this may be hard for us to hear in our society today as we look out at the landscape and the history of our own country and the direction that it seems to be going and around the globe. But we are in a far different position than Paul or that those whom Paul was writing to under the rule of the Roman government. They had no means of changing anything. They had no means of electing anyone. They had no means of giving their voice in any kind of way. It was whatever was said, that was it, no questions asked. And if you asked, you probably were going to get killed. And if you're a Christian, you might even get killed anyway just because you're a Christian. So while we may hear right now in the 21st century in the United States of America, not like what we're hearing in some kind of ways because our flesh recoils against anything that speaks about submission to authority, the Christians that Paul was writing would say, what are you guys talking about? You got nothing on us. You certainly have nothing on us. And so our good citizenship is to be governed in the same way that Paul tells them, by a willingness to submit. We cannot begin to make expectations for submission based upon the varying kinds of authority that may be in rule. 
We cannot say to ourselves, well, I'll submit if it's a good ruler, but I will not submit if it's a bad ruler. And whatever gamut in between, whatever stage it may be, we cannot say, well, under this one I will submit, but under that one I will not. There is no room here in this text for that kind of variation. Verse 1 doesn't allow for that kind of thinking. It does not differentiate between a good ruler and a bad ruler. All it says is that we are to be in subjection to authority. And so the thing that comes up into our minds is the very thing that we began to look at last time. Why? Why? The very question our children love to ask us when we're parents, why? We gave them an answer that doesn't doesn't reflect a, a next why question. They still ask why. Well, that's us. God never has a problem with us asking why. He may not give us the answer we're looking for, but He never has a problem with us asking why. And so here we are. We're at the text, and Paul makes this grand statement, and the people who he's writing to in that day probably thought the same thing because they're just as human as we are. And we're saying, why do we do this? Paul gives various reasons why. We've already highlighted the first two reasons from last time we were in this text. One was that God is the source of authority. First reason why is that God is the source of authority. For there is no other authority except from God, it says in verse 1. God is the source. And that confirms to us then that He is the only one with all authority, right? If He is the source of authority, then He is the one who is the one who has all authority. And hence, we know from the Gospels that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. So God the Son is the one who has all authority. There is no authority except from God. And so if God is the one with all authority, then His Word is that which is to be considered the most authoritative. Now think about it in your own life. I was going to ask the question this morning, if I was to start by asking the question, what holds the most authority in your life? Some of us would say the Word of God does, and rightly so, we would say that. And then we would begin to diagnose and dissect exactly where that authority lies in our life. And we would find very often and very often more than we'd like to admit, it's not really the authority. We say it's the authority, we talk about it as the authority, we hold it in high esteem as if it's the authority, but in the practical reality of our life, Probably not the authority. And we know that to be true because there's so many times we just don't do what it says. God is the source of all authority. There is no authority except from Him. That's reason number one we are to submit. There is nothing more authoritative than God's Word. And therefore... All of our subjection to any subordinate authority must also 
and ultimately be subjection to that which is the ultimate authority. Let me say that again. All subjection to any subordinate authority, authority that is in place, ruling authority, our subjection to any of that must also and ultimately be subjection to that which is the ultimate authority or God's Word. In other words, there is no higher authority than the Word of God. There is nothing in life, nothing for which we interact with, nothing for which that has sway in our life that is higher in its authoritative weight than the Word of God. This is very important. Because while the Apostle Paul doesn't explicitly say and doesn't explicitly give examples of the when and the what we need to be in subjection to. In other words, Paul doesn't delineate which laws you follow and which laws you don't follow. Paul doesn't go into all of those details here in Romans chapter 13. The demands that authorities place upon you. Paul doesn't talk about these specific demands. What this text does tell us what it does imply is that the ultimate authority is God in all things. And therefore, it is that authority that is the arbiter as to whether we submit to authority or not. It is the Word of God that is the arbiter as to whether we submit to authority. And that must be from a correct understanding of what the ultimate authority, the Word of God, says, and not documents of men. Let me say that again. The arbiter between the what and the when we submit to authority must be the Word of God, rightly divided, and not the documents of men. Now, why do I say all that? Because some have already thought of things within our very country. Some of you, thinking about this very text, thinking about the things we've already spoken of last time, have already thought about rules currently within our country. Rules that we are under, things within the history of our country, things within the makeup of our very country in which God has providentially placed us, that actually Christians have oftentimes participated in and oftentimes not participated in because they believed it was either right or wrong, and they base that right or wrongness upon a faulty understanding of what the Bible teaches. We Christians must remind ourselves constantly of whose we are. We must remind ourselves of where our true citizenship actually lies, or we can easily become self-righteous, unsubmissive citizens. We can be those who hold to the constitution of this nation 
or some other document as if it has the ultimate authority. I remember years ago when I was pastoring in Ohio, the elders were recommending some amendments to the bylaws of the church as it came to church membership and the reality that church membership is for Christians only. And that in order to show yourself as a Christian, one of the means or one of the ways in which that's pictured is through baptism. And so they were suggesting that we say you can't be a member unless you've been baptized as a believer. And we were presenting that to the congregation and one man stood up in the congregation in that meeting in anger because he believed in his own wrong understanding of the word of God that we were somehow taking away his right, his right of freedom of speech. Where he came up with that, I don't know, but he stood up and he had a copy in his hand. This was a person who had been part of this church for over 30 years. He stood up with a constitution in his hand, a constitution of this country. And he said, I swore, he was part of the Air Force before, I swore that I would uphold the constitution of the United States before all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you are standing against it. I was was shocked. I was shocked. A man-made, written document. The history of this country, yes. A document that has afforded us freedoms that maybe we wouldn't have been afforded if those things were changed. And yet still a man-made document is going to have ultimate authority. The Word of God is the ultimate authority And I am certainly not attempting to be political. Like, I don't even want to go down that road. But I simply desire for us to understand that the only reason we have rights in this country, the only reason you and I are sitting here this morning with a freedom to do what we do in open assembly as we are, is because the current laws of this country allow these things to be called rights. That's it. Those laws are adjustable at the will of the governing authorities. And when those laws change, when the governing authorities change those laws, then our rights also change. And we as Christians are to submit to those new rules as long as they do not violate the ultimate authoritative word of God rightly divided and understood. So why then does God establish human sub-authority? Why does he establish it and why are we to submit? Well, we've already given two reasons. There's a second or a third reason. The third reason is this. Rulers are ministers of God. Rulers are God's ministers. They're God's ministers. Notice verses 3 and 4, because we've already covered verses 1 and 2 in the previous message. You can get that information. 
Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. You want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good, and you will have praise from the same, because it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what's evil, be afraid, for it doesn't bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. It's an interesting study in humanity that by nature in general, we are afraid of those who are in rule. Study sociology, you look at the makeup of humanity and its sinful nature, and humans in general are afraid of those who have rule. It's very interesting to see this in action. For example, you're driving down the interstate. You are in a line of cars. They're all in the slow lane of the interstate. You're driving with them, and so you pull out in the other lane, and you start to ease your way past those who are not going the speed you desire. And as you travel past the cars, you get to the first car in that lane that's leading the conga line of cars in the slow lane, and you notice, uh uh-oh, that's the highway patrol. And instead of continuing to go past those cars, what do you do? Ease off that pedal. Ratchet back my speed a little bit. Don't want to pass that guy. Why? Because you fear authority. You fear that even if you are going to speed limit, he might somehow find something in order to take you to the side of the road and have a little class about the law. We fear authority. We do it instinctively. We slow down. You didn't have fear of the other drivers as you were passing them. That was no fear. One might be an off-duty police officer, but in his normal car, you don't fear him. You don't know. You just drive by. But the one who has authority, the one you know who has authority, you fear. Why? Because you know they have the power to adjust your behavior. Well, in a similar fashion, that's what Paul is saying here. That's what he's saying here in verse 3. Paul is continuing his general argument as to why we are to be good citizens. Paul says, because rulers and powers are not against us if we subject ourselves to them. They're not against you if you do what they are saying. In other words, if we are good citizens, if we are law-abiding citizens, if we remain submissive citizens, then we have nothing to fear because they are really only against evil. That's what he says. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. You see, so don't be afraid of authority. Don't fear authority. Why? Because they are not out to get you unless you put yourself out against them. Then Paul poses a question. Verse 3. Do you want to have no fear of authority? It's a rhetorical question. We, we 
obviously would say, no, no, I don't want to have fear of authority. I don't want to be a person who goes around wondering if I'm going to get in trouble all the time. I don't want to be that kind of person. Wouldn't you want to live without fear of authority? That's the idea. Does you want to be a person who, who lives without fear of authority? Then if that is your wish, if that is your desire to live without those fears and fear of those who have power, then what? Do what is right. Do what is good. And you'll have praise. Do what's good. You want to live with somebody who doesn't have fear of authority coming against you? Fear of someone coming, always looking over your shoulder, if you will? Then do what's good. What Paul is saying to his Roman citizens under Roman rule, under the heinous dictatorship that they were living under, far from being punished by authority, you will be praised by them. In other words, they'll be a great help to you. They'll be a help for your life. And it'll be to your advantage. Why? Verse 4, because they are actually ministers of God to you for good. They're ministers of God to you. That's why. You see, you have to understand the authority. You have to understand the ultimate authority. You have to understand the source of authority. You have to understand where they came from. It doesn't matter the process for how they got there and what it looks like on a human level. None of that really matters. What matters is we understand the ultimate reality. We understand the big picture. We don't live in the small picture. We understand the big picture. We know who they are. We know how they got there. Notice notice in verse 4, Paul mentions two things. One is positive and the other is negative. The authority is the minister of God to us for good. That's the positive. It's the minister of God to us for good. He's talking to Christians. Remember, he's not differentiating between a good ruler or a bad ruler. Even the bad rulers are ministers of God to us for good. It might be to us for the good of our own life and learning how to live under some dictator and some oppression. It might be that. But God is always doing things for our good. He always works that way. Paul had said that back in Romans chapter 8. All things work together for good to them who love him, being called according to his purpose. So they're ministers for good. That's positive. So we only need to be afraid if we do evil because we must always remember that they do not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, they haven't been given their authority. They haven't been given their power just as a, as a badge, as, as something that, that is a symbol. They haven't been giving the sword for nothing. By the way, you know what minister means here in the first, when he says that at the beginning of verse 4, for it is a minister, that, that word is servant. It's a servant. In other words, all established authority is ultimately an instrument in the hand of God. It is a servant in the hand of God. And therefore are good if we submit. But if we refuse to submit, remember, submission always is that rule. The rules we are submitting to align with the ultimate authority of the Word of God. As long as they align with that, as long as we submit to that, we're we're. We're doing what God says. 
But if you don't do that, then you can expect the sword. You can expect the sword. It's an interesting study if you if you look at it. In ancient times, the sword was a symbol of power. That's that's what it was. It was it was a, a symbol at which the one in authority had power. In fact, in the time that Paul's writing this, in the time when Rome ruled the day, it was the custom. It was the custom of a Roman emperor uh, when he was appointed, and then when he would appoint other like governors over other regions, he would give them a dagger as he stated their position of authority. He would give them this symbol, this power. In fact, history tells us that Trajan appointed one of his governors. He gave him a dagger, and this is what he said, quote, For me, for me, if I deserve it, in me. For me, if I deserve it, in me. What did he mean? He meant this, I'm giving you this dagger, this symbol of authority to be used for me. You're an ambassador of mine. This is authority. It's a delegated authority. This is to be used on behalf of me, right? They have been given the sword, haven't been given the sword for nothing. It's to be used for me. But if you find that I'm even a violator, then in me. And you execute the sword on me. So the sword represents the authority, represents the power given by God to the one in authority, even to the extent that if necessary, it might even need to take a life in the execution of punishment for the evil deed that someone has done. All of this is done on behalf of God. Even if the authority doesn't have a personal relationship with God. It's all done because God is the ultimate authority. And God is the source of it and God has established it. So what matters is that they are ministers of God for good. But if you do something wrong, if you go against what doesn't violate the ultimate authority, the Word of God... If you go against the law of the land established by them as ministers of God, then they have been also given the power of the sword. And so we must not forget that. We must not forget that. We have to remember as Christians in this country that our ultimate authority is the Word of God. And therefore, if the law of the land is changed by those in authority. As long as it doesn't clearly violate the ultimate authority of the Word of God, the law is changed by those in authority, then as Christians we must submit. And if we will not submit, then we are sinning against God first and foremost, and we can expect judgment We can expect judgment of some kind from God through His delegated authority. So we must submit. We cannot go against. We must submit because God is the source of authority. 
Because if authority exists, then God established it. And because rulers are God's ministers. There's a fourth and fifth reason that we have that Paul gives us here in verse 5. He says, Wherefore, if necessary, be in subjection not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. So there's the fourth and the fifth reason, wrath and conscience. Wrath and conscience. It's very simple. These are two more reasons why we need to submit. We have to subject ourselves because of wrath. Because of wrath. In other words, if we don't submit, there's going to be punishment. We've already heard somewhat of that in verse 4. Right? They're an avenger. They're an avenger who brings wrath. End of verse 4. The one who does wrong. The one who practices evil. So, so in simple vernacular, don't be stupid. That's what he's saying. Don't do the stupid thing. Let's do what we're supposed to do and what we've been equipped to do through Christ and avoid the wrath. Makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's very common sense-like here. Do what's right. Who would rightly want to get upon themselves the wrath of God mediated through a delegated authority that he's put in place? Who would want that? No one is thinking right. You see, all of us here today ought to be inventorying our lives. We ought to be asking ourselves, as we look at our lives' history, as we look at our lives from from time we were born all the way to however old we are now, how much wrath could I have avoided if I would have just submitted? How much wrath could I have avoided if I would have just submitted? If I would have just listened to what God's Word said instead of the words and ideas and philosophies of the world, if I would have just listened to God, how much would I have avoided? Instead of those who thrive on hyper and unbalanced understandings of what the Word of God does not say and does say, instead of that unbalanced view that swings the pendulum to the radical right and to the radical left, how often could I have avoided trouble in my life if I would have just spent my own time rightly dividing the Word of God instead of reading the latest internet guru? Paul says, be subject to wrath. Be subject because of wrath. But over and above that, he says, be subject because your own informed Christian conscience. Because your own informed Christian conscience. Remember, he's speaking to believers here. He's speaking to believers you say, well, what, what about my conscience? You can go all the way back to chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You know what you've been saved from. You know what you've been saved out of. You know what you were before. You know what your heart wanted, desired, served. 
But God, because of his mercies, has saved you out of that. So therefore, present your body a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't think like the world. Don't accept the world's ways, the world's thinkings. Your conscience has been informed. You know the truth. You're not someone who's ignorant concerning the source and establishment of the governing powers. You're not someone who who doesn't know who they are instruments of. You know the truth. Your conscience is bound by truth. So if you go against your conscience, you're not only going against what you know to be true, but you're going against what you know that your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ know to be true. And therefore, you're going against the common knowledge of the Christian community who understands the teaching of God's Word and what it says about authority. And that ought to cause you to pause. That ought to cause you to pause. That ought to cause you to refrain from disobedience. And if it doesn't, if even that doesn't cause you to pause, and that is your pattern of life, that you do not pause, you do not care, then possibly you have deceived yourself as to your salvation. Because that's not what Christians do. Willful rejection of authority is the characteristic of those who do not know Christ. Not the characteristic and ongoing characteristic of those who do know Christ. And so if this truth on authority gives you trouble, it shouldn't if you're truly a believer. Paul says, why? Because you're already obeying it. You're already obeying it. Look at verse 6. The very things he said in verses 1 to 5, he says, for because of this you also pay taxes. In other words, everything I've said about authority, everything I've said about governing authority, the rule over you, that it's God, He's the ultimate authority, that it's God who establishes that, that authority, that you, that you need to fear the sword, that you should... Remember the wrath, and you should remember for conscience' sake. You say, yeah, I hear all that, but but that still doesn't convince me. Listen, you're already doing it as a Christian. You're already doing it. You already pay taxes. Remember who Paul's writing to. Don't forget that. This is important. Right? These are Christians living under the Roman Caesars. I said it already, there was no provision under the Roman Caesars to to vote. There was no voting booth where you go to the voting booth and you get some chance made by the laws of the land that God's brought you up in to, to possibly make a change and put someone in place who won't rule like that. They had no chance of that. There was no means of peacefully making changes to the law. Whatever the Caesar declared was law. And it was law immediately. It didn't matter if you could afford it or not. If you didn't comply, consequences followed. Paul says, don't bristle against that. 
Don't bristle against what's being said. You already pay taxes. Why? Why do you pay taxes? Because you recognize the authority and power of the state. And paying it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Why? Why is it the right thing to do? Paul says, because rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. By the way, that's a different word than in verse 4 where it says they're ministers. This is a different word when it says here they are servants of God. The idea in verse 4 is it's directed at the one, the person in authority. That that person is a is a minister of God for good. But here in verse 6, it's more to do with the office. The office is a servant of God. The establishment of that office of authority. Same words used in Hebrews chapter 8 to describe the office of the priest. Not the person who is the priest, the office. It's an office that is a minister in the sanctuary of God. Yes, it's, it's facilitated by the one who holds the office, but, but the office is the minister. And so Paul is drawing on that, I think. Paul is drawing on that imagery. He wants us to understand that those who are in authority have been divinely ordained for it, just as the office is divinely ordained. It's not a mistake. And so we pay taxes in order to maintain that office because that office has been divinely ordained by God. The payment we make allows the office to function. Now, we can have debates as to whether the office is too big or too small or needs to be more or not. We have, we have ways in our country, thankfully, by the mercy of God, of changing that through peaceful means. But it's the office that Paul means. They're servants of God. That brings us then to verse 7, because Paul sums up his whole argument. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Render, the the word render means just just give back or or pay back what is owed. That's the idea. Pay back what is owed. It's a debt. It's as if we have a debt. In other words, that's to characterize, that's the overall character of of us as Christian citizens. We owe a debt. We owe a debt to the ruling authority. What are you talking about, Pastor? I don't even like the ruling authority. I don't either. But we have a debt because God established it. And our debt is not to them personally. Our debt is to the office because it's God who established it. And that is to characterize our relationship to the ruling authorities. So when we pay taxes, we are giving back something. In order to maintain the office, we are paying back a debt that we owe. And that would have bristled in the hearts of these Christians. You mean I owe them something? That 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 ruler? Paul says, yeah, you, you don't owe them personally anything, but you owe it because God has established it. The word custom here carries the same idea. Tax, custom, 
was a direct tax owed. So you had indirect taxes. Our country likes to call those fees. We have fees. You go to the town tax collector to register your car, and there's, there's tax, and then there's fees. Those are indirect taxes. Paul says, listen, custom, give custom. Indirect taxes, taxes, direct taxes, give it to whom it's owed. And then he says, fear to whom fear. I think he's simply referring to respect. Right? Give respect, give honor, not fear that we normally think of. It's, it's that respect because we ultimately respect God. In fact, that's exactly how Peter says it in 1 Peter 2.17. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's interesting where Peter puts that right in the middle, fear God. The idea is implied here in Paul's words. Paul says, tax to whom tax, custom, huh? custom, fear to whom fear. That, that's the implied reality, applying respect for the office. Not necessarily the person in the office. They may be wicked. But they're instruments in the hands of God for the good and glory of his own name, the good of his citizens and his saints. And therefore, we submit. In fact, here's how Jesus put it. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. Here's how Jesus said it. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do to you. But I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed. <laughs> it's interesting how he puts it. After he has killed. Well, didn't you just say someone else takes my life? Yeah, they're an instrument. Fear him who, after he has killed, implying God, has authority to cast you into hell. I tell you, fear him. You see, the reason that we respect authority on this earth is ultimately because we fear God. That's the ultimate reason we fear God. And fearing God is the best first step in adorning the gospel in our life. We are to be gospel reflectors, and the first best step is that we fear God. Because it's only through Jesus Christ, it's only those who know Christ, it's only through Christ that we can live out our duty to subject ourselves to God's words, to God's commands. We have no ability without Christ to, to, we hear this stuff without Christ, we go, yeah, that's a bunch of nonsense. I'm not doing that. It's only through Christ, it's only in Christ that we can do that. And it's only through the power of the Spirit that we can stand under the wrongful hand of authority when we must obey God rather than men. You know what held some of those martyrs to the stake when they got martyred? was just the fact that they were standing on the Word of God, rightly divided, and it was God who held them there. It wasn't some innate strength in themselves. It was God who held them there. That's the only way we'll be able to do it if we ever have to stand under the wrongful hand of authority when we must obey God rather than men. 
So I pray that God would help us as we apply this truth in our lives simply for the sake of his glory and the proclamation of his gospel. There's a whole lot more we could say, but we'll save all of that for next time. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for our time this morning. What a privilege to just be able to walk through this text and to know what it is you require. So much probably going on in our hearts and minds as to the things of our own day, how we are to carry out our own lives. Should we obey this? Should we not? Lord, help us to rightly divide your word so that we know exactly what it is we're standing on. Let that be the ultimate authority in us and not just words, not just, oh yeah, we believe what the Bible says and then we walk so much in the wisdom of the world. Lord, forgive us for disregarding your truth. And thank you for being so clear to us just who it is we are obeying. Give us the strength to do that even when it means foregoing our own things, property, whatever it is, whatever our government decides, whatever those in authority decide in the future days, as long as it doesn't violate your word, let us freely, freely relinquish. It's all yours anyway. And we'll praise you forever and ever in eternity because you have loved us through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.